0: Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Working Audio Tools with myself, Ed Thorne, and fellow YouTuber, controversial YouTuber, Mr. Paul Third himself, the plug-in assassin and the science nerd himself over there up in Scotland. This mix engineer is a platinum-selling, four-time Grammy Award nominated and one-time so far Grammy Award winning mix engineer from Atlanta. Can I introduce Preston Prizzy reed who has mixed and worked with the likes of Usher, Kanye West, Alicia Keys, John Legend, and a host of other names that will blow your mind. What's up, guys? How you doing? Very well, very well. Now, let's get straight into it. Tell our audience a bit
1: about you, because the the main reason I wanted you on this podcast is because I think your story is one that everybody needs to hear. I love you. I've loved your story ever since I first saw you on Instagram, and i just seen the work you were putting in, and you've got to a level now where we all want to be um, and you've just done it through perseverance and hard work. Kind of a lifelong musician. My dad's in music. My mom
2: loved to dance and just, you know, grew up around music. I thought I was going to be a drummer growing up.
1: Didn't Another drummer. Hey. my God. Why is there <laughs> drummers on this podcast? <laughs> my God.
2: Yeah, man, for some odd reason. Drumming. Then shortly after that, got into producing. This is, I don't know, 12, 13 years old. And uh, yeah, I was that kid that just always wanted to make beats. always wanted to find the guy that was rapping, or somebody that could rap to my beats. I was always somewhat technical, so I loved computers. So I didn't really choose engineering. I feel like it kind of chose me, in a way. Um, So I did that for some years in Chicago, worked with a handful of um, up-and-coming artists. I moved to L.A. when I was maybe 19, uh, with my uncle, trying to work with him. He's an actor. It didn't work out very well, Uh, He said I wasn't dedicated enough and he kicked me out and sent me back, (laughs) sent me back to uh, Chicago. That was rough, but it was a big lesson on, you know, if you really want it, you got to make some sacrifices. Yeah, I was in Chicago for a little bit. After that, I went to Columbia College. I believe the same college Kanye dropped out of. I also dropped out of there, but...
0: (laughs) Great minds think alike. (laughs) uh, Yeah,
2: here we go. Um, In 2015, I moved to Atlanta with uh, my cousin... Cat. Shout out, Cat. And he was working at the studio called 12 Studios. It was just a bunch of young people just cutting their teeth on making music and stuff like that, who now, you know, in hindsight, everybody is a somebody. It's Pierre Bourne, the producer, Aaron Reed, a lot of guys from Baitaway Mafia, The Loopholes, a lot of big producers right now, they all started in that same place. And I happen to be there. So just working with them every day simultaneously interning down the street at this place called Silent Sound, which is the world-class legendary studio. And yeah, man, I was, just one of, I was just the guy that I felt that I always had to prove something. So even in being an intern, I wanted to be the world's greatest intern. And I would do all the random things that nobody wanted to do. Not nobody, but I feel like the first day I was looking up like toilet paper origami. Like when the artist came in, they would go to the bathroom and say, who the hell did this? You know, <laughs> I wanted to be that guy. Even on days where people wouldn't show up, I-, I wanted to be there every single day. So I think what it is now is just years of just that mentality every day. Just kind of putting one foot in front of the other. I-, I don't necessarily believe that talent gets you you know, to the top of the world. I think talent is just like a prerequisite. And I think you just gotta just keep at it. Whatever you do, you just gotta do it
1: every single day as a commitment. And I think good things happen. How long did it take you interning until you were actually given, say, like your first shot at a mix? I mean, was it something that uh, I hear many stories where people are like, um, the the mix engineer was off sick, and I kind of got thrown into this mix session, and then I did a good job, and then. I what from there was it like that or was it like a- yeah
0: that's that's been like everyone's story <laughs> no. on this podcast so did you have
1: yeah. anything
2: similar there was definitely that for sure so i interned at silent sound for maybe a year and some change i assisted a little bit there as well um from there i got a job with tricky stewart the legendary producer and i was his assistant for a while. Um, but working under Sam Thomas, who used to be Brian Michael Cox's engineer. Um, and he was, you know, the older brother type. I just feel like he was just the Swiss army knife of engineering. And I would just sit in the back of the room, just trying to be as valuable as I could with him. Eventually, you know, Tricky had like three or four rooms at Triangle at the time. So he couldn't do everything. Sam couldn't do everything at all times. I don't know exactly what song it was. But I would always try to present, like, rough mixes and stuff to Tricky. And you just hear no after no after no after no after no. (laughs) And not to mention Tricky and Jason Joshua are, like, you know, great friends. So not only is there a no, but he played in contrast to what Jason just said back. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) And this is year after year. Uh. Um, But it's a good lesson. You know, it's like getting in a boxing ring with... Uh you know, Tyson Fury or something every day, like sparring with them.
0: And was it obvious to you at the time what was different or were you asking questions and getting coached? Look, Jason's done this, what you've done is this, maybe try X, Y, and Z. Or were you just figuring it out and reverse engineering stuff?
2: A lot of it was reverse engineering. I think um, I was pretty fortunate because it's tricky. You know, he produced all this stuff and, you know, Dream wrote all this stuff. So I had access to hard drives. <laughs> I would go in the back room oh, and just open up man. old sessions. They were yeah, they weren't Jason sessions or anything like that, but they would be like the original recording, you know, the thing that got sent yeah. off to mixing.
0: So uh, that's what we need on the podcast. We need access to a library of commercial tracks that are out there. Yeah. Done by the best guys. And yeah. I mean, we have access to multi-tracks. Uh, that's a massively lucky situation to be in.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, every day I would just mess with with those sessions and really anything I can get my hands on it'd be stuff that Dave mixed uh Jason, just anybody you could think of um around that that and was time. this
0: in in one of the other studios and you were accessing their say mix setup and their analog gear, or was this just you borrowing the stems and doing it on your laptop in the box yeah i would
2: it would be in the box sessions, and of course, I would mix them in the building, I would mix them on. Sundays or days that nobody was there because I I know it was my own little side project but it was my main mission (laughs) you know Uh, along with with working and trying to be as valuable as I can be but yeah it was just one of those like compare and contrast like listen to what you did versus the song that's actually out and in the world and working yeah and then you say oh shit my drums got to be like this oh my vocals need to be placed like this and it You know, it takes a while. It's not like an instant aha moment, but just reverse engineering it is very, you know, eye opening. And then along with working with, you know, one of the the best producers of a generation who's constantly just, no, no, this isn't right. No, this isn't good. This isn't good. Do it over. Do it over. Do it over.
0: You know, as long as you can endure it, you get better. Yeah. Did you feel it was very much Karate Kid, wax on, wax off, repeat, repeat, rinse, repeat? And you're thinking, why am I doing all this stuff? And then there's a yeah. was a light bulb moment of, I get it now.
2: Yeah, I don't know if that was like the plan. I think it was more sink or swim. And if you're swimming, you know, <laughs> yeah. by definition, you're a good swimmer. <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> so <laughs> I, I,
2: I think it was that over the years. And I know I'm not the only one. There's plenty of people who came up from that that regime that learned it in that way. But yeah, man, it's, it's a blessing to be here, and it's. It's a lot of things that went right, and it's a lot of opportunities that you just prepare for. You prepare for all different scenarios. I was trying to mix pop songs, rock songs, anything I could, just because you, you never know. You never know what's going to
1: pop up. When you were listening to those mixes, and when you were getting these no's and no's and no's, what were the main things that you found that you had to address first? Like, what were the main kind of big issues that you were having? In your mixes, that when then once you address them, it was of just like little kind of tweaks from there. There's more than one answer to
2: that, but most of it wasn't really sonics, to be honest. So if you learn how to mix from a mixer, you usually learn in a technical way. You know, you learn gain staging and plugins and, you know, how to stack things on top of other things. But when you learn from a producer, you learn how to mix from a producer's point of view. So you're listening for urgency. You're listening for the hit. There's a big difference between making something sound good and something sounding hot. Two completely different games. So I think learning from producers taught me how to just focus on the thing that's going to create an emotion, the thing that's going to get people moving. And you'd be surprised on how much, how much the technical stuff takes a backseat. That doesn't mean you don't have to know it because you need to know it. You need to know aliasing. You need to know oversampling. You need to know all this stuff to make sure your mix doesn't go in the gutter. But understanding these principles, how can you hang with other musicians? There may be a producer that they want to hear more kick. They want to hear more thump. You can't talk frequencies. You just
1: got to turn the shit up until they start to bob their head and you're like, okay, we're good. (laughs) So it sounds like a balance. It sounds like a balance between the technical and the feel. And it's how you get that right balance. And I think that's what we've kind of... Well, I've struggled with anyway. I don't know much about Ed, but many people say that... It would, I won't surprise you because I know you watch my channel, so I do. Obviously, I'm over-technical. That's who I am. I'm Paul Third. <laughs> it wouldn't be me if I was over-technical. But you know, I have I have learned from a lot of mixers who have said to me, Paul, you think too technically. And you need to strip it back. And I was doing a mix this week and it was the very first time where I was just thinking, right, faders up first. Right, what is it I don't like about the song? Then I was just like cleaning stuff up, cutting stuff. I was very careful about what I was doing. And then when I was listening to the song yesterday, I was like, right, how does it feel? And then I got to a point where I'm like, right, okay, I quite like it. And then the over, then the technical side starts to come in. When you think mm-hmm. you've got it. Then the technical side starts getting in your ear, and it's like, "Hmm, is yeah. it a bit, is a bit too toppy, is there a bit too much of that." A bit and then I put it into ozone to give me a recommendation, and then that just fucking. <laughs> then before know it, oh, I was good. in technical mode again. How do you, oh, how good. did you find, um, a way of balancing that kind of, or basically stopping that technical side just kind of creeping in? But you've got to focus on the song because, as everybody says to us, that's what the most important is. Have you got any kind of methods that? you found help you kind of stay on track? A lot of it came from learning from other producers. But um,
2: the main thing I would say is take a lot of breaks. I mean, I take breaks like every 15 minutes or something at this point. Not, I mean like real breaks, like, you know, go get food, go out to dinner type of breaks, but just stepping out the room, like whatever, you know, doing anything, going to the bathroom, stepping out the room, check your phone, something just to kind of keep the perspective fresh and keep it musical. I think, like, in our generation of engineering and stuff like that, it's just too many options. And you're in a room by yourself, so it's like, you know, it could turn into an insane asylum fast, you know? <laughs> Especially if you don't have windows in your studio. <laughs> like, my God. <laughs> you're just alone with your thoughts, and you, your room's probably quiet if you have treatment, so that's another layer of it. So you always got to keep that musical perspective. You know, when you're working with musicians and just really musical people, at least for me, because I grew up, you know, playing drums and just different instruments, I always felt like a musician, even if I'm not compared to all the people who really do it. I always felt this need to like, how can I, how can I jam with these guys? What is my instrument?
0: Do you feel like your background as a musician and, uh, and you're making beats from a very early age I guess you were producing stuff by default doing that. Do you feel like that has had an influence on your mixing career? And have you been able to draw experience from that that you think has benefited your mixing?
2: Definitely. Definitely. Um, Just because you're going off of emotions. When you're mixing off of thought, like I mean, you could pick anything apart. And truthfully, the only thing that makes something perfect is kind of social proof. If something goes 10 times platinum, it's perfect. The world deemed it as the perfect song. If a Beatles song is panned way over here, well, that's that's perfect compared like how everybody sees it. It could be technically wrong, but if it feels right, it is right. So I think always kind of keeping yourself in check on how do you feel about it? When you play the rough, how do you feel? And if it gives you a feeling, how do you preserve that feeling? while polishing some of the technical problems.
0: And how long would you say it took you to get to a point where you really trusted yourself in terms of delivering that feel? Because it's so, A, genre-specific, B, Mm taste-specific. Was there a point when you thought, okay, my taste buds aren't quite in the ballpark? Yeah, basically, at what point did you feel like you could trust your own taste that it was right every time? I
2: think it helps when you do stuff that people... Like, if you put anything out and you get any type of positive response, it kind of boosts your, your sense of like, oh, I was right on that. I felt this and I did this and it worked. You do that a few times and you start to feel like, okay, I can trust what I'm feeling. I think only when you get the opposite reaction is when you start thinking about it and you start thinking, oh, is this good enough? Am I good enough? Like You just go into this dark hole that
1: it's kind of counteractive to what you're trying to actually do. In terms of the way that you do your mix approach, do you take the kind of the Jason and like the Serban approach of I want this to sound the way that it should go out, or is there certain times where you sit back and not that? No, I'm not going to say that you, you go. It's fine. The mastering engineer will pick up pick that <laughs> up. But um, yeah. you know, as a how hard is it you know to have that kind of thought of. I don't want the mastering engineer to do anything. I want this, my version, to be the version that gets accepted and then it goes out. Um, so is yeah. it something where you take the Jason approach of, like, I push it as far as I can push it, send it out, and I my intention is that's going to be the final mix? Or do you always kind of have the mastering engineer in the back of your mind a little bit?
2: Um, I feel like I'm somewhere in between those two extremes. And it also depends on the client. If I get something from... You know, a, a newer independent artist who they're trying to find their sound, I'll try to get it as close to the finish line as possible, what I would consider to be finished, just because there's, it's kind of a blank page. You know, it's a blank canvas. But with an artist that's already established or an artist that they know what they want, a lot of times it's breaking a bunch of technical rules. And I try to make it loud. I try to hit as many checkpoints as possible on V1. Sometimes by V two, V three, it's closer to the rough than it is to V one of the mix. But that's their art. You know, like who am I to say what's right and what's wrong? And sometimes like it comes out and it actually sounds really good. You know, so I, I try not to just throw it, dump a bunch of, you know, a pile of shit on the mastering engineer. But at the same time, like I don't I don't do a ton of pre-mastering. I'll make it loud and I try to,
1: you know, avoid any frequency masking or any crazy phase issues now the reason i always ask people that is i remember i had a mix consultation with warren Hewitt and i remember i thought the mix was a little dark, and he was like oh no it's okay it's okay the mastering engineer will pick that up as long as the mix isn't terrible he's like this mix isn't terrible i just needs a bit of a high-end lift mastering mastering engineer would pick that up and then i heard the thing about al schmidt i'm pretty sure it was al schmidt and he was talking about the reason that he ended up adding i think a high shelf on his mix bus or whatever. Was because every time he was getting the masters back, he realised that oh, these masters always sound brighter than the mix that I had. Again, we had um, Tour of Medina on last week, and you know he was kind of saying, you know, I mix and master my own stuff, and that's kind of a way that many people do it because you kind of you don't need to think about the mastering engineer because you're taking the whole process from start to finish. So I've always found it interesting yeah. as a mixer, you know, those things where. Are are you thinking about you know what most mastering engineers are going to do to the mix? Because I remember when we were in Abbey Road um, with um with Jason. <laughs> I make that sound like yeah, we were just in Abbey Road with Jason, but it was a mix. <laughs> yeah, it was a mix with the masters. Yeah, it was ninety eight other people. <laughs> it was a mix with the masters. <laughs> at Abbey Road. <laughs> um, but he was talking a lot about how he sent a lot of mixes to mastering engineers, and he they went, "They've ruined it." Like subjectively, I've heard, I've got got it back, and I'm like ah man it's like ah it's I don't like it you know and so he and I think that was the thing where he in his mind was like right not that he's going to try and outdo the mastering engineer but he was like right what do I kind of know that they're going to do so I just can kind of try and kind of in some cases damage limitation and he was talking about the importance of finding mastering engineers that you trust because you know that you know the two of you work together in the same way that a producer finds a good mixer a mixer normally finds like a good mastering engineer and stuff so how have you kind of got on in your career, you know, dealing with the producer and then the mastering engineer and like also the the artist as well? Because that's a lot of hats socially that you've got to wear and sometimes a, a yeah. lot of the politics that can be involved in that.
2: That's the game, man. You're dealing with a bunch of opinions. You know, when you're in the group chat with the producer, the a and the writer, <laughs> everybody... <laughs> That's the game. You got how to know how to juggle that type of stuff. But yeah, to your point, in that case, I do like to go to the same few people, usually. Shout out Depp. You got to have him on here. Uh, my boy, Mike Tucci, I work with him a lot, too. Um, there's a handful of people that I, I really like to work with. And we could have those creative conversations um, from a mastering standpoint on this is what I like. This is what I have. If you can't beat it, I can send it like this. If you feel like you can do what I did better, I'll send it without this. It's very um, kind of team-oriented. With producers and tracking engineers, it's kind of a similar battle because a lot of times they send the rough. I mean, the rough might say 2021. It's like they've been, This has been their favorite song in their playlist for years. So you can't just go like pulling all the faders down and starting over. It's not going to happen. So you got a millimetres of space to work with to enhance what they gave you without changing what they
1: gave you. Ed, we need to keep that in the bank. That's a great saying. <laughs> that you've got millimetres of space to play with, especially when you're dealing with really good tracking engineers, really good producers. That's a great saying. Because I think that's exactly. something that mi- many people, I think mixers, forget that. And again, I think me and Ed have all been in the same boat. When you start out, you go, "Yeah, I'm gonna do this, and I'm gonna do that, and I'm gonna add this plugin and that plugin," and you've got all these chains. When you know you send it back to the the producer or the artist, and they're like, "What the fuck have you? done? What did you listen exactly. to the rough? What what have you done to our song? Like, what is exactly. this? Like, what is this?" Yeah,
2: exactly. And I'm not saying people don't do it. You know, it's a bold move, um, but. Nine times out of 10, like you're getting paid to do, to make micro changes, not macro changes. So you have to find that little extra five to 10% and get it over, over the hump.
0: What's the um, kind of balance between working directly with artists and producers and A&R? Would you say it's an even spread or is it kind of more, more of one than the other?
2: It depends on the situation. If it's independent, it's usually the artist, maybe the producer or their engineer. If it's a label situation, then it's the A&R, it's the manager, it's the second manager, it's the road manager. You know, it's like 10 people in the group chat and you...
0: And in terms of, second part two of that is, in terms of... Dealing with egos, you know, dealing with singers, as I know, professionally, <laughs> it's uh, well documented that you have to deal with those sometimes. Yeah. In terms of producers, what what's, what's the industry like in terms of ego on that level? Obviously, don't name and shame unless you want to, but... <laughs> no, I mean, you get a little bit of everything, to be
2: honest. There's people that are super cool. There's people that are, you know, not the easiest to work with. You know, it's a service and you got to be professional regardless. If they're cool, it makes the job way easier. But if they're not cool... You still got a job to do. You still have a reputation. You still you got to make it happen regardless. So it's really on you how you respond to this type of stuff.
0: <laughs> Distro kids sponsors the Working Audio Tools podcast, and 30% off your first year subscription can be found in the podcast show notes and the YouTube video description. Hyperfollow is the easiest way to place all of your content in one single place, making finding all of your content super easy for your audience. Upload artwork for your release, edit the information, and apply links to all of the streaming platforms your music is going to be available, which of course on DistroKid is potentially all of them that exist now and even in the future. Add social media buttons so your audience can find you and your latest music video. Creating a beautiful landing page with a preview of your music is easy with HyperFollow. Hyperfollow links can be created for all of your releases and it enables you to create pre-save links for your audience to pre-order your music before it's released. This link is shareable on all of your platforms and a great way to promote your next release only with DistroKid.
1: Are there any no-no's if you would give to say like somebody that gets their shot and this is the very first time that they're in the group chat. you know. And now I've got this image of being like, oh my God, yeah. I'm in the group chat. Oh my God, yes, I've, yeah. made, it to the, I've made it to the group You've chat have made level. it to the group chat. You wake <laughs> like, up and you get two, <laughs> 10 messages from the group chat, everybody's opinion on V1. Oh my God, that sounds like <laughs> a nightmare. So are there any kind of yeah. don'ts that you would say when you get that shot, when you're dealing with all these different people? Are there signs of certain things that you could pinpoint to say, don't be like this, maybe don't say that, don't do this or don't do that? Is there anything that you kind of know are like, no, they're like big no-nos. I mean,
2: it's like any business, man. Like, if this is a restaurant, you know, it's the customer's always right. That's just what it is. Even if they're wrong, the customer's right because it's going to look way worse on you than it will them. If they flip out on you, okay, if you flip out on them, you're done because they're going to go in other rooms and talk about the time Paul said this thing to them or freaked out to them. The no-no I would say is, Don't burn bridges, you know. That's it. If if you're an opinionated person, you got to just try your best to check that opinion or have buffers so that that opinion can be like, you know, mitigated into like the message, the point of what you're trying to say. That's really it, man. Just be cool. Be cool. Do you have
0: that one friend that you message with a situation and be like, oh man, you've not... No idea what I've dealt with today. I tell my wife. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I tell my wife <laughs> pretty much everything. <laughs> At
2: one point we had a puncher bag in the house, you know. Like, <laughs> I get the notes back and I'm like, all right, I'll be right back. I'll <laughs> beat the crap out of the bag, come back. Okay, hey guys, yeah, V2 on the way.
1: <laughs> and how big generally are the notes? I know every mix is different. That's kind of like, I'm asking for like, a very, on average, uh, and every mix could be different. Sometimes you'll get a mix bark and you're like, yes, hardly anything what are what are the notes normally like if you were to put an average on it are you saying that's maybe like two three things or sometimes it'd be five ten things like what would you say (sighs)
2: that's a tough question because every day is so different man sometimes it is like a oh i love it just turn this ad lib up those are the best i can imagine (laughs) but then there's like then there's a time where an artist would send you a voice note and it's like 10 minutes long oh and you could tell from the first like 10 seconds it's not enthusiastic, you know. They get on the phone like, "Hey, bro!" So I listen to the mix. Oh no! Thank, thank
0: God! Thank God for double time on WhatsApp. Yeah, yeah. So, I've got Paul permanently set to two times. Yeah, no, my <laughs> voice not took quite long. No, no, one, one and a half because two times I can't understand. Yeah, that's him. true. Yeah, you're
1: fucked if uh, you're uh-huh. <laughs> trying to speed me up, <laughs> fucking hell. And I suppose the way that you deal with those feedback is, as you said, you've just got to be cool, customers right, and it's just a case of yeah. Like okay, we're going to do that. Now, l- when we had Tura on, it was interesting because he was saying that, like as you said, like the customer always is always right. It's a service industry. But he was like, there are certain ways that you can put things to try and maybe get it maybe the way that like it was going really horribly wrong, and you're really like, no, this is this is going to be at the detriment of the artist. There's ways that you could maybe just plant little seeds. And hopefully they'll be like, yeah, know what, man, you were
0: absolutely right, let's do that. I mean, how do you... No. I, th- I think his example was adding 10 dB of reverb to the bass or something <laughs> like so just some, some <laughs> extreme wild example. Is that something that
1: you do sometimes, or do you genuinely just go, it's you, look, it's your record, and even if your heart-to-heart is telling you, oh, I don't know about this, do you just go ahead with it? Or do you sometimes position things in a way that kinda um. is going to benefit the track?
0: Again, that's down to taste, isn't it, I'd guess, so... It tastes, but there are some balance. like there
1: are
2: some technical boundaries, you know. And the person could be hiring you or calling you for your experience, you know. If you they're new artists, but you've had stuff on the radio before, or if you've had stuff at the top of playlists before, you ha- you're privy to information that they don't have. So they might be trying to push a boundary that you know we're going backwards. If they're like, man, I want this to be the loudest thing on Spotify. And it's like, well, bro, we're at like minus two luffs. Like, it's not going to happen. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> they don't know that. They just know what they play from their phone is the loudest thing on their phone. They don't know about loudness penalty. So you kind of have to put yourself in the mind of who you're working with. So that's where conversation helps. I think with the new client, getting over that V1 hump is everything. Because then you can kind of identify like what they really want. Sometimes they say, do your thing. But do your thing isn't really do your thing. Do your thing is don't change anything. But you don't know. You don't know until you send V1 and they say, I love what you did. Or I love it, but maybe we can just get it to sound more like this version. And they <laughs> resend you the rough. <laughs> you got to figure out what they want. And then as a mixer, your job is... I'm never here to tell them what to say, but I'm here to help them articulate it better. You know, I'm the guy that finishes
0: the sentence. That's my job. It's, it's, that, it's that slightly passive-aggressive forward of a, me- of a version they've already sent you in WhatsApp that they just <laughs> click on and then press forward again to the same person. It's yeah. like, uh, oh, right, okay. <laughs> yeah,
2: but, you know, it's fair, and we're, we're working with something that doesn't exist yet. You know, so that's kind of the beauty of it. It's like you know, it's their baby. All I can do is you know help deliver that baby and hope it goes off into the world and does great things. But it's still yours. You got to go off and present it to the world. So I'm always going to try to serve the song the best way I
1: can. So in regards to serving the song and having to get it loud, what is your methods of doing that? Because I know certain people have certain methods. Some people have the methods of clip you know certain elements of the track some people believe um i'll clip the buses some people will believe no i'll clip the the two bus before i go into um the limiter at the end how do you have you got kind of certain things that you believe help you get that loudness in the most transparent way and i know it could sometimes be different genre to genre but like how do you go about giving the artist um that loudness without, you know, completely losing, you know, the sound that they've got in their head.
2: Honestly, I feel like it's more instinctive. Like I don't have like a set process. It's more it's like a checklist. I'll try the most practical thing first, which is just the fader. If that doesn't work, I'll try maybe some saturation. You know, depending on say the kick, I want it to stand out more. It might be saturation thing. It might be transient shaping. It might just be like the little flicker at the top of the kick. So you can just hear it better in the mix. You know, so I might take like Neutron Four Transient Shaper and just sharpen the top of the kick. Yeah, it just depends on what the song is telling me in that moment. Sometimes I clip the two bus, sometimes I clip the master, sometimes I I'll try it all. And I'm not really fixed to any one way of doing things. I try to be, you know, as mutable and as much like a chameleon as I can be in these situations because people are experimenting they're trying new things out and i want to be kind of a creative uber driver In that way <laughs> if they say turn left I'm like all right okay, turn left <laughs>
1: like, and how hard was that um at the start because I, that's something that me and ed are again we've kind of been teetering on you know on how to get loudness you know without completely ruining the song is that something that took you a while to get or is that something that you kind of still feel you're sometimes still experimenting with to kind of get that kind of set of loudness
2: It's very genre specific. It's production specific because sometimes things sounding really wide and bright make it feel a lot louder than it really is. Sometimes songs that are scooped feel a little louder, you know, kind of tapping into the whole Fletcher Munson curve type of thing. It's probably 10, 15 different ways that to me, songs can sound loud. And it really just depends on what people give you. If something is very like mid-rangey, like an R&B song. You don't really want to go scooping that type of stuff out just for the sake of loudness, just to say it's loud, you know. Especially when we're in an era where a lot of stuff is getting normalized, anyways. So, that may not be the whole point of it. As long as you're beating the rough, as long as you're competitively loud, Spotify is going to level match it, anyways, in most cases. So, you just want it to sound good, with everything to be heard, you know, loud and clear. But I, I don't necessarily go for minus
1: five luffs
2: on every single song, including ballads. It's not really
1: one thing. <laughs> I know. I think, I find it interesting when people kind of talk, I, spell, I know that the EDM community is like, it's, everything's got to be loud. It's got to be minus four, yeah. minus four. But you know, like I, yeah. I say to lots of people that, you know, like I've seen Adele songs you know, and they're still ballads, but again, around minus 11, minus 12, I'm pretty sure. Oh, Bruno, Silk Sonic. Yeah. That was like, I'm pretty sure it was like minus 11 luffs. And again, he didn't push yeah. it. And everybody's got this thing about it's got to be minus eight. People say, you know, the sweet spot's minus eight. And, but there's some records out there that are like really like kind of tied yeah. back. Is that something that you do? What I get taught is get it as loud as the song needs. As soon as you start feeling that the song has kind of fallen away, that's, that's your indicator to go, no, what I don't care how loud you want it. The song's falling apart. Exactly. That's how far I'm exactly. going to push this. Yeah.
2: Once I stop feeling it and it starts to feel kind of flatlined and stuff like that, dial it back. Like if I'm looking at my meters and I'm at, I'm at nine, minus 8.5, so be it. That's what the song needs. I just try to make sure the relativity between instruments and sounds is cohesive.
1: Mm, that's a good point.
2: That way you can lower it, turn it up, stretch it, the top end. It doesn't matter because everything's connected in a musical way.
0: Yeah, I feel like I've had to learn that the hard way in the last last few mixes I've done on the podcast. As I've been getting used to my new speakers and Trinov, I have over-limited and, yeah, at the, at the cost of the, the lifeness and the open and the spaciousness of the mix, I think, which is a, one of those frustrating learning curves that you just have to, right, that's gone out, put that down to experience, do better next time. I've learned something, my ears are a bit bit, bit better overall. It's a positive experience, if not frustrating. So Paul is a very creative mixer. Uh, as well documented on this podcast with his mixers, to the point where he'd probably agree with me saying he quite likes to get the credit for his creativity, (laughs) whereas I'm a bit more of a, a subtle mixer in terms of with effects and, I dare say, a bit more song flow orientated. How do you draw a line between... Wanting to be creative and, again, wanting to be genre-specific or following correctness guidelines. And, for example, did you have any examples uh, with Tricky and comparing to Jason's mixes where you were maybe schooled or or it was suggested you went in a different direction maybe in terms of creativity and effects? I think early on,
2: especially with effects, that was... Kind of a challenging thing, because I was so focused on trying to get things to sound good that I would just completely overlook effects and then there was a time where I did the opposite, where I just tried to have the world's greatest effects on vocals that didn't need it at all, you know, and I would spend thirty minutes on some delay throw that goes all around your head and does all this cool stuff,
0: <laughs> and it's a
2: complete side street to the actual song, and hey nobody you were cares. just ahead of the time you were just ahead <laughs> of that you know yeah. yeah. I wish I could have told the client that, but um, (laughs) I think now I found a good balance, but I feel like as far, if I work on an artist, if I work with an artist on an album, I feel a little more freedom to try things out because they're not coming to me with a single. They're not saying, this is the song, we got it as far as we can take it just run the ball five yards and score the touchdown and just be happy you're on the team. (laughs) It's not that type of game. You know, if if it's 15 songs, either one of these could be something. So let's try some stuff out. You know, and everything is a work in progress. So I might, I might drop the beat on different places. I might do some delay throws. Worst comes to worst, they say, cool. So all the things you just did, just mute that and it should be good. (laughs) (laughs) That happens too. I definitely feel a little more creative when I'm working on a body of work with somebody.
0: Hey there, Ed here. You may recognize my voice from doing all the other DistroKid advert segments. At this time, I didn't want to just do a typical advert talking about stuff to do with DistroKid. I actually wanted to give you my feedback about the service because I genuinely do use DistroKid for uploading my music. And I know Paul does, and it turns out Dan Worrell does as well. I've used DistroKid since 2019. As you can see on the screen, I have six releases so far. It is genuinely super easy to use. The tracks get into Spotify within 24 hours, which is remarkable. Apple Music takes a little bit longer. I'd suggest giving that 10 to 14 days. The hyperfollow links are really useful for advanced promotion of your tracks. And the promo cards are really great visual aids for social media promotion. Ooh, I particularly like that one. DistroKid collect all the royalties from your streaming services. And here you can find an itemized breakdown of where all your income has come from. There's also a DistroKid referral where you can save your friends $10 per sign-up by creating your own VIP referral link. It's amazing when you could mix a record and then you mix it, mix it, mix it
1: and that's why it's good to take breaks. Now, I was mixing a record this week then I put a reference that I knew up against it and I I forgot to do it early doors or through the middle of the track and straight away I was like, wow, my bass sounds really boomy and kind of a little bit muddy and then Mm -hmm. see trying to get that kind of low end to not sound kind of like kind of boomy and kind of just sit into the track right I, I was able to get it in the end but it's it's always seems to be a struggle for me and i think every mixer i've spoken to has always had low end has always been this thing that's a struggle ways of thinking about low end are just kind of certain things that you do that helps you get that correct relationship especially bass and where you could get the you know, the kick to punch, but the bass to be not overly boomy. I think boomy's the sound that I hear on a lot of mixes I did from years ago. And then I hear professional mixes and I always hear the low ends never boomy. It's there, it's felt, and it's all it's nicely tucked in, especially if the kick's taken the prominence. Like yeah. how how did you deal with um getting that low-end balance right? How do you deal with getting that low-end to just sit in the pocket, nice, still have the feel, but not be like too much, if that makes any sense?
2: I feel like I probably spend as much time on the low-end as I do on vocals, especially if it's really drum-heavy. I'll start with low-end management first because I know that's going to be... It's the gift that keeps on giving if you get it right, and it's the problem that keeps on compounding (laughs) if it's not right. So... (laughs) You might as well just do it first. Yeah. Yeah, so if I get a song, like a pop song, that has an 808, three kicks, bass, synth line on the hook, and all of it just happening at one time, you got to figure out how to make all that work first. We've got a
0: mix like that coming up, Paul.
2: Yeah, I know. I try to look at mixing as like building a house, and that's like the basement, and you want the basement to be as solid as possible because that's the foundation of your song. The more solid, the better. You want to anchor the low end, If it's a bass guitar, whatever you hear on that first impression is everything. Even if you got to write it down, if you have a good memory, even better. But if you got to write it down and say, oh, the kick is clashing with this, you got to listen as an A&R first and decide, I like it, but this, 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 Right. Okay. address all three or four of those things first. And then usually, you know, smooth sailing for the most part, there's always, you know. The guitars and blah, 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 blah. But the low end management, especially from a gain structure standpoint, that's everything. If you get that hitting right and it's loud and it's punchy and doing all the things you want, once you start bringing in other elements, the mix, it kind of mixes
1: itself after a certain point. How do you stop a bass from sounding too boomy, from sounding like getting in the way of the mix? Is that just something that you you learn over time, and are you somebody that likes to high pass, um, or again you get some people that high pass, you get somebody that'll put a low shelf in instead. Again, people some people are worried about phase and stuff like that, but like how yeah. do you normally work? Have you kind of got like not a set technique, or but like a kind of a way that you like to work? So if the kick's taking the main priority, then the bass can sit in the pocket without kind of sounding too boomy and kind of just too much. i mean you can get kind of mixes but it's like the bass is like it's too audible and then i always find i'm I'm starting to get this balance where i want the what i hear in the big pro records is that the bass is felt but it's not too much so have you got like any like ways that you think about it or any kind of ways that you manage a low end if you get something coming in like a bass guitar and you're just a bit like "Mm, yeah it's a bit on the boomy side and like but i still want it to have the feel say like if the fundamental of the bass um, getting out of the way of the kick say if it's around say the 200 250 place like what do you do or do you not even think as technical as that do you just kind of know you've taught yourself by ear just to go right that's not sounding right and then you know
0: Is this not so genre specific though like a lot of the stuff Spike no. does is pop stuff where the bass just isn't really remotely a main feature it's not even a a hook it's not like in rock music where there'll be melodic lines that are their own hooks in of themselves and it's not grime or hip-hop where it needs to be the prominent feature. So, sorry, to extend to Paul's question, yeah, how do you manage that again, genre specifically and um, taste specifically again, taste? It is very genre-specific and it's very producer-specific. So,
2: to use Tricky as another example, he actually likes two basses modulating against each other. So, spending... Can you explain what you mean by that? So, say you have like a Moog playing and also an 808, or two different mogs playing at the same time, or a different like lower Juno part playing at the same time. When they play together, they're going to do this weird modulating. Listen to like Rihanna, Umbrella, like the bridge specifically. There's two parts that are kind of fighting each other, but that's the whole point. It creates this tension.
1: Know, so if
2: you start rolling one thing off, or rolling anything off, you're going to lose that, and it becomes technically better, but musically... You're losing something. You're taking a step back. So, in that case, leave it. You know. But in a traditional sense, I'll try to make the kick sit on top of the bass. Personally, I like to hear like a clear, defined kick. I sidechain every now and then. It's not common practice. A lot of times, I'll just try to EQ and balance. Um, let's say like the 60 hertz area, something like that, just to make sure one wins. Even if you gotta boost like a little bit on the kick and dip a little bit on the bass, you just want that little pocket so you can hear it and feel it a little more. Two hundred is cool, depending on the genre. It's a very like kind of knocky frequency. In pop it works really well. In hip hop, it depends on the song.
0: Are you choosing a winner? Which one goes lower, kick or bass?
2: Personally like the kick to to take up the whole top kind of middle and lower frequency. Best case scenario, the bass dips. But like I said, it's it's so hard to give you a straight answer because every song is just oh, yeah, so different. Oh yeah,
1: definitely. I know that.
2: I like to have a really big kick personally, but sometimes I do that and that's just not what the song needs. Sometimes the 808 has to win. Sometimes the sub bass has to win. I'm working on this um, kind of Jamaican record right now and the bass guitar has to be the loudest thing. The kick is actually in the backseat because it's kind of like a dub guitar type of thing happening. It's all about taste and what feels right in the moment.
1: I don't think too much about it. Because I think when I was doing the mix last night, and I was just like, all it kind of for me needed was actually, it was just the bass being brought down. And when I bought, brought the bass down, all of a sudden I was like, All oh, right, right, okay. I think now it's working better. But it's amazing how if you don't take breaks, you can get accustomed to that sound very quickly. And it's only until you mm-hmm. take a step back and you've got another reference, that you go, wow. I hear that now. Again, every time I speak to a, a professional mixer, I always take the same thing. Where it is, Paul, you're just being too overly technical. You're overthinking about things <laughs> too much. And it, it, it was
2: it was hard to answer the question because I'm like, wait, I don't I don't think that much about it. I just kind of yeah.
1: go. You can also listen outside of your
2: room. That's kind of a cheat code too.
0: And then you kind of hear things yeah. that weren't really
1: kind of standing out before and stuff like that
0: exactly yeah i i used to do that doing live sound if i was checking the bass i would walk into the next room and yeah. just check if it was a good good balance i'd also be the sound engineer stood in the middle of the crowd with my fingers in my ears <laughs> like that yeah. and everyone's thinking all the band are thinking Fuck, you know it's his sound does it sound that bad and i'm not I'm, I'm just it's a way yeah. those are two different ways of just disconnecting yourself so you're you're getting a fresh perspective no. without having to ask so him. to
1: simplify yep. it would you kind of say probably the easiest simplest answer for for a big technical guy like me is it's probably just level and that's all it is most of the time if you've got say the kick in the bass isn't really sitting right a lot of the times you don't need to go for a side chain you don't need to try and then try and go with EQ a lot of the times it might just be right just bring the bass down and level and just exactly. let that kick win and do you so, exactly yeah so do you kind of feel that is probably what the most important thing for many Um, people starting out mixing is is to focus always more on fader than anything else and whenever you think oh I could maybe do this or take that out that's kind of clashing just try and play about with faders and level because I've been told that from a lot of engineers as well that Paul you'd be amazed at how much you could do with with a fader and a pan pot and that's a lot of the times just that is genuinely all that you need it's generally could be as simple as that yeah, I mean, I know it's not the, the sexy answer <laughs> in 2023
2: when, you know, there's a trillion plugins out there, but uh, it's the basics, man. Like, less is more. Plugins are kind of like makeup.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. So,
2: I mean, you just keep stacking makeup on top of it. Eventually, it loses its natural beauty. So, if yeah. you want more kick, like, you'd be surprised what 0.5 dB does on a kick.
0: Yeah, my mate, Al Lawson. Shout out to you, Al. He's, a, he's, a, he's I think he's our number one fan of the podcast. Um, he's uh, he works for Jay Reynolds in London, who's worked for loads of people and does a lot, a lot of his Atmos mixing. If anyone needs Atmos mixing, shout out to Al Lawson. Um, and he he's a recording engineer, and he worked with um, Bob Clearmountain for two weeks on nice. one occasion. And I just said, and he said, everyone asks me what's the secret, and he said there is no secret. He doesn't do anything. He just just how he raises the faders and pans stuff to his taste. Is what sets him apart from everyone else. Yes, there's, you know, there's, there's phase things, there's EQ things he can do, but he just said it's just his how he balances the faders. Just that taste is specific to him, and it works. And his mixes transcend multiple decades. They still sound better than a lot of stuff on the radio does now, and it's it's yeah. remarkable.
2: Yeah, volume, EQ, little compression. Like, it could take you far then the other stuff just becomes that much more effective because you got the right balance and the right foundation.
1: And do you think that maybe that's been a a bit of a bad sight about the way that um, YouTube has kind of taken over kind of the audio industry a lot, especially for those kind of starting out, that there is a technique and there's a hack and there's a trick for everything. And there's people obviously trying to sell plugins and so many things. It's like, you need to do this trick and that trick and that trick and that trick and so-and-so does this and so-and-so does that. Do you think that that's maybe the downside of all this that is clouding everybody into believing that the art of mixing is actually way more simpler than what it actually is and that people are being distracted by all this overcomplication and by creating all these chains and getting all these plugins and using all these different things you're actually hurting the mix more than you actually are bettering the mix Would you maybe say that modern engineering has maybe got a bit over complicated maybe because again they don't maybe have the the influences that you had and the mentors that you had kind of grown up that would teach you right no just chill out right let's just kind of do things simple and don't lose the song do you kind of feel that that is something that maybe needs to be pushed more is just how simple mixing actually is because i think we all we all listen and me and ed do it all the time listen to spike listen to sterven listen to jason yeah. and you're like yeah. I, I, no no they must be doing this they must be doing this special trick they must be doing this no they, no, no how could their mixes yeah. sound like that P- Paul Paul regularly says there, there, there's something they're not telling us there's <laughs> yeah. something they're not telling us <laughs> yeah. but do you think that's nah, I mean, because we overcomplicate things do you think that's big? a big part of it these days
2: I think we're in the generation of everybody's working in isolation so there's a disconnect of just learning from somebody like a Bob Clear Mountain era engineer just saying like yeah, your favorite song I did with just faders and one compressor, or just kind of debunking the mystery behind it. And there's so many cool toys and plugins and things like that, that it's easy to go down that rabbit hole right now. But in reality, it's a team effort. A great song is a great song because it was written well, it was produced well, it was everybody played their role well. And the mix just takes it over the top. But yeah, man, like a good balance, a good everything. Like, you just got to remember it's a song and not a science
1: project. Yeah, it's a good it.
2: Like right now, well, right now it's so many plugins and oversampling and all this other stuff. And it's cool to know, but it's the song. We're selling the song. We're selling an emotion to a casual listener who could care less about how it was made. They just care if they like it and if they feel something from it. Find good producers, find good songwriters, find good artists and just try to find the magic. I think that's the, the best way to do it and let the plug serve you. No, I think it's but, a great point,
1: yeah. Because I think, I think many people get surprised when obviously what I do on my channel and I do all these tests and I think I always say to people, it's good to know why things do what they do. And that doesn't mean necessarily that you need to use them, but it's good to know that if you get yourself in a sticky wicket, then you kind of can problem solve and kind of work the way back. But, you know, when I mix, I am finding that less is genuinely more. And it seems like every mix I do, I'm taking less plugins off. Like this was the easiest mix I've ever done, but processing. It was just a bit of stock EQ, the odd compression, but I felt that I needed it. A little bit of mix bus processing. It was only things that I felt I really, really needed it. But it it is that worry that you've got that like it it can't be that easy. But everybody I speak to says it is.
2: Don't get me wrong, man. Like you need to know all this stuff. You need to know I love the videos you do. Like it's it's super important to know how does it stack up to the real thing, right? Like I have 10Ps, L-Bus, I have all that stuff. Like I'm very familiar with all of this stuff. But again, when you're in the heat of the moment in a mix that needs to be turned in in a few hours and they just sent you the files five minutes ago, it's no time to start experimenting with which SSL Bus compressor is better than the other. This is when you need to know the day I spent last week figuring that out. Now I'm going to use this compressor from last week. You know, even if it's not the best one, I know what it's going to do. I know the waves one is more smacky than this version. I know this one has more mid-range than this version. So it's all good stuff to have in the back of your mind. But in the moment, these are just instruments you're reaching for. It's just a tone. It's just a the sound. There's no better or worse. It's just what's going to work in this situation. Let me try it
1: experimentation totally and I think that's what I find funny <laughs> is um, a few people were surprised when I said I'm going to go back to doing all the geeky stuff and all the tests and stuff because when I was speaking to engineers they were saying the exact same as you where it was like Paul I don't have the time to do all this stuff so see when you, t- you take the time to compare this and that and I'm already thinking oh, I'd like to know what that sounds like to that and they were all like Paul you were saving us time you were going right okay you do your test well and I think that's something that should never be taken for granted. It's just how busy you guys are. And that as soon as you get into this full time, there is no time to do a lot of the great stuff that I do on YouTube and all these experiments. As you said, it's the mix comes in, you've got a deadline to work on and you're just gonna use the tools that you have at your disposal that you know and you're just gonna get the mix done. How I mean in terms of like your your weekly schedule, I mean how many I mean how many hours would you say you're working a week? I'm finding more of a balance
2: these days, but yeah, I was I was definitely one of those psycho guys that <laughs> wake up until midnight, just mix, take small breaks to eat. Um, I'm getting better. I still work usually until midnight. I try to take weekends off when I can. A lot of times it doesn't happen, but I definitely try. But I do vacation and I do visit family pretty frequently and stuff like that. Yeah, I think my average day I start mixing maybe 10 a.m. I probably mix until 10 p.m about 12 hour days long days
0: are you predominantly
2: headphones or speakers uh so i have my speakers every now and then i'll use headphones um i have atc 45s and i have some amphions which i'm getting used to i had them before and i didn't have them and i got a new pair so they're, they're nice getting used to them again
0: i found the amphions are what the atcs should be if they had the right amount of low end and top end in them
2: Yeah, I I love ATCs for the mid-range. Oh, yeah. The the Amphions give me like an NS10 type of thing. Just more detailed. And I'm so used to NS10s from just years ago. So it's a very familiar sound.
1: What about headphones? What headphones are you using?
2: I have these trusty Sennheiser HD800Ss. I've had these for years. In fact, I had these way before I had ATCs. I would mix with these and like,
1: the kitchen counter and what about conversion what, what what's your what's your main conversion oh is that the same? C- word
2: conversion so <laughs> i have a uh, lynx aurora and mm-hmm. the actual d-to-a converter is the avocet quantum d-to-a which i love and as far as a to d if i do print back analogly, is a lavery gold Saboteur or Savitre, however you
1: say it. Is that is that, are we talking the Lavery gold? Like the big expensive one. Oh, he's done it. Okay, for those, he's wet both.
0: For those listening, Prizzy is showing us
1: his setup on the yeah. video. As much as I am Paul III, the the kid in me wants a Fairchild. It's just like, that's my thing. It would be a Fairchild. Was that just a thing that you, you wanted because you knew it would give you a certain sound?
2: I like to write stuff down. I like to you know, manifest and all that good stuff and say like, oh, I'm going to get this. And by this year, I'm going to get this. A lot of times it actually does happen. Not exactly how I planned it, but inadvertently somehow. Um, the Lavery, it was kind of a milestone thing. Believe it or not, I don't use it that much.
1: I had a feeling.
2: 90% of the time I'm in the box. But, you know, every now and then, especially recording into Pro Tools, it's great. But yeah, it was it was a milestone thing. The ATCs were definitely a useful a usability
1: thing. And the, what else um, was on your list? I'm but, trying, I think I can't remember. What 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 was the, Have you got everything on your list? Pretty much everything on that list. I got a whole new list now. <laughs> you'll
2: uh you'll have to interview me in a year. I'll show you. You got a bad get a yeah. bad
1: case of gas, haven't you? <laughs> uh, yeah, gear yeah. acquisition <laughs> syndrome.
0: I think that's been an episode absolutely full of gold. But to finish What piece of advice would you give young engineers, mix engineers trying to break into the industry, being as competitive as it is at the moment? Ooh, that's a good question.
2: I would say try to add as much value as you can, no matter where you are. By that, I mean, say you're a mixer and you're developing your skills every day and you find an artist that you genuinely think you can help. Only you know what you can contribute to them. They don't know they don't know that yet. so reach out, do a bunch of free mixes, find producers you like. Everybody's accessible to some degree at this point, so it's up to you to connect those dots. You don't necessarily have to be a salesman and knock on people's doors and say, "This is what I can do for your life and career." But you can reach out, DM them, see what they say, say, "Hey, I, I love your music. Do you mind if I take a stab at mixing one of your your songs?" Or something. You never know what that could lead to. I feel like that's the best way to try to break into the game right now because it is it's super saturated and it's hard to stand out.
1: And I would say that is probably the the main advice that I think we should always remind people about that again networking is a big part of the industry. Um and essentially don't be a dick. Yeah, don't be a dick, right? Just be as nice a guy. As Prizzy is, because I man, you must be like the most chilled guy I think we've ever had on this podcast, man. Like I, I I I couldn't even imagine <laughs> pissing you off, man. You're just like so laid back, could, and, I, and I think that's a big thing yeah. is that again how you project yourself is you know a big part of this industry because again if people kind of even if people were to watch you and certain because I know you've done other stuff and I could just imagine many people meeting you being like oh, that's a nice chilled, cool cat, man. And if you come across as an egotistical maniac you're not probably going to get many gigs people won't want to work with you not that it's a personality contest yeah. but you know what I mean just yeah don't be a dick don't burn yeah. bridges and yes mixing isn't as as difficult as Paul Third <laughs> thinks it is it is, an, it is an art at the end of the day and it is something that you need to uh, practice 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 until you get it right and yeah let's leave it at that Prizzy man it has been an absolute honour to have you on the podcast thank you very much for taking up you your time this week and yes, um, for anybody who doesn't know right now, Ed's not feeling very well. We'll cut this bit out, but he's actually having a, a bit of a coughing, <laughs> a coughing breakdown. He's not feeling very well. So it's fine. I'll end the podcast there. So, ladies and gentlemen, hope, hopefully, Ed's um, <laughs> able to come back. I don't know. I think he's I think that's him done.
0: <laughs> Definitely, that's Ed done. So, there you go. Ed, are you still here? Still there? I'm still here. Prizzy, you're a gentleman. Thank you. It's been emotional. We'll see you on the next one, guys. Thanks for listening.
2: Appreciate you guys. I'll see you.